Okay, good morning. It's really cool to be back here. I, I kind of grew up here, and uh, yeah, it's a beautiful full circle thing. Um, so you all are going through the Psalms this summer, right? At our church at Redeemer Yadkin Valley, we are going through Judges, and it just happened to line up that we're in Judges 5, which is a psalm. So I thought, I'll just bring a psalm from Judges 5. This is a song commemorating a very, very unlikely victory for Israel in the Promised Land, in Canaan. Um, I'm going to give a very brief summary of the history for those of us who haven't recently refreshed our memory on Judges. Um, and then we'll jump right in. So, uh, Father, please help us this morning. Please send your spirit. Quicken our hearts. Show us what you want us to see. We pray that you would help us this morning. Amen. So, a brief history. Um, God brought Israel into Canaan. Canaan was a massively important location in this age. It was the epicenter of trade routes coming from Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, making it one of the most influential places in the world. And it was possessed by the Canaanites, who were a group of people who were pretty notorious for their brutality, for their idolatry. Uh, they practiced cultic prostitution, uh, and, and in even many cases mandated it in order to coerce the gods to make the land fertile. Um, they practiced child sacrifice. And uh, things had gotten so bad in Canaan that it was pretty common to encounter roving bands of men who were practicing recreational rape and murder. I mean, this place was rough. Um, and God told Israel, get into the promised land, get into Canaan, drive them out. It's through you, my kingdom of priests, that I will disseminate a new value system throughout the world. It's through you that I will bless the nations. Israel goes into the promised land. They fight a few battles, but eventually they begin to synchronize with the Canaanites. They begin to worship Baal and Asheroth and Molech and all these other gods alongside of the Canaanites, alongside of Yahweh, and they begin to intermarry, and eventually they become so passive that they don't even have any weapons anymore, and uh, they begin to be ruled by the Canaanites. So this song is all about another moment of renewal when God says, nope, go fight them, drive them out. And it's an unlikely victory. So I'm just going to jump in and start reading. So Judges chapter 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. Deborah is a prophet and a judge in Israel. Barak is their military commander. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. 
The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. So what that is describing is things were so rough in Canaan that you couldn't even travel on the main roads for fear of being robbed, murdered, for fear of extortion from Canaanite troops. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So they didn't even have any weaponry anymore. Um, and this is, this is describing a really, really important pattern here. It's the same pattern all throughout the Bible, and it's the same pattern that we experience in our lives. It's the pattern from mission to an imagination for an adventure of faith into tolerance of things that we shouldn't tolerate, which eventually turns into synchronism, which turns into idolatry, and eventually it turns into being ruled by the very things that we used to just enjoy living alongside of. That's what happened to Israel, and that's what happens to us too. And when that happens, we stop seeking God's wisdom, and we manufacture our own wisdom. So we're called to that same adventure of faith, that same mission to bless the nations. We are still a kingdom of priests. We know it in our hearts, but just like the Israelites here, something happens and our imagination for the kingdom begins to atrophy. It gets smaller and weaker. Here's how the pattern happened in my life when I was a young man, when I was maybe, I don't know, in my early 20s. I had, I had pretty big expectations for the adventure of faith, but the problem was my, my imagination for that was built on my expectations on how that adventure of faith ought to go. Expectations that were totally disconnected from the way God works. And so God failed to live up to my expectations, and he disappointed me over and over again. And life became confusing and complicated. And so I began to manufacture my own wisdom, my own worldview, and life became safer and more predictable for me and totally disenchanted. So, and this pattern has also been observed in the world of social psychology. There were these two social psychologists um, who uh, were tasked by NASA to come up with a way to measure imagination. And they invented the paperclip test. Has anyone heard of this test? Okay, so 1968, NASA wanted to hire the most creative people in the world. And so um, a guy named George Land and a woman named Beth Jarman created the paperclip test where they got 1,600 five-year-olds and they gave them each a paperclip and said, how many ways can you think up to use this paperclip? Okay, and then they came up with a rubric by which to determine what a creative genius was, and 98% of five-year-olds registered as creative geniuses. 
Then five years later, when all these kids were 10, they did the same thing. 30% of them registered as imaginative geniuses. Then they did it again when the kids were 15, 12%. And then again when they were 31, and 2% of them registered as creative geniuses. What was happening was the truncating, the atrophying of divergent thinking, which is a type of thinking where it's all possibilities. It's belief, it's faith. And that began to come into conflict with convergent thinking, which is the brake pedal that says, no, that idea won't work because of this. And NASA wanted the people whose divergent thinking was stronger than their convergent thinking. And that's what was happening with the Israelites. They came up against this enemy and they were just full of, no, this can't work. Their faith had been replaced with intelligence, with wisdom. And so they chose to become passive and wait for the time to be right. And so in my life, what happened was my love of the adventure of faith, as I became disappointed, was replaced with a love of stories about the adventure of faith. And that atrophied into a love of stories on the couch, which atrophied into an addiction to entertainment and comfort and safety and predictability. And uh, it took me a long time to see what was happening to me. And uh, Van Gogh says it perfectly. He says, normality is a paved road. It's comfortable to walk on, but there are no flowers there. And man, that was true about my life. And there's nothing wrong with movies, stories, entertainment, comfort, but when they become our highest aim, our kingdom imagination, like the Israelites, begins to atrophy. <clears throat> along with our faith, and God becomes just a pretty picture on our wall. Thank you. So, our mighty Father in heaven becomes a pretty picture on our wall instead of that mighty Father who calls us to follow him into an adventure of faith. Has anyone here experienced this pattern? I sure have. I lost my imagination. But as we continue reading, God will show us how to get it back. Um, can we go to the slide with the chariots? Here's what was happening is God called Israel to assemble on Mount Tabor and to fight the Canaanite general Sisera. Sisera was famous for having 900 chariots that were covered in armor, scythes, blades, and this is an Egyptian depiction of what these chariots could do. They would carve through enemy troops. I mean, this was going to be a very one-sided affair. It really was foolish for the Israelites to respond to the call. I mean, it was, they were gonna lose. So let's read on in verse nine. <clears throat> Actually, can we show the, the, the Mount Tabor itself? So the Israelites, the, the few tribes that responded to the call show up on that hill with Sisera and his 900 chariots and his troops in that valley. That's the exact mountain today. So we read on. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel. 
who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. See, they didn't have any weapons. I mean, they were running down that mountain with farm equipment. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then march down the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. And then we have a, a bit of a change in tone here. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too, at the heights of the field. So we've got a few tribes who show up, who believe God's call, and then we have most of the tribes who say, I'm a little busy. I love the line, there was great searchings of heart. Maybe it's not the right time. And they were thinking, don't do anything foolish, but with us, the same pattern is completely appropriate here. For me specifically, it's don't look like a fool. For me, it's my, my pride and my reputation is on the line. So when I went through seminary, um, I remember my first preaching class, and I thought it, I was going to be pretty magnificent. I really expected that. And uh, it, my first sermon was terrible, and then the second one was terrible, and I think they got worse progressively until the last sermon I preached in seminary. I remember being at the pulpit and talking and thinking, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And... Uh, <laughs> It was, it was rough. Um, and so I, I really hated preaching because I just wasn't good at it. I wasn't impressive. But the pattern here is that God calls us to action while we are totally and utterly unprepared. Have we seen that pattern in scripture before? So the Israelites, they're on this mountain or they're called to this mountain and their options are be the fool or wait. Look stupid, or in their situation, risk their lives, or wait, and probably never do anything. So those are the two options. And, um, you know, Carl Jung describes this concept that is so helpful to me to understand this. He calls it circumambulation. Um, it's a great description of, of sort of the literary arc, the hero's journey. And this is the idea. 
Carl Jung says, we all start out having no idea what we're doing. We desire the wrong things and we pursue them stupidly. And that's how we learn about the world. And so we desire the wrong things, we pursue them stupidly and we fail miserably. And then we get up and we refine our desires a little bit more. We pursue them again, probably fall over again. But eventually, in Carl Jung's theory, the fool becomes the hero. That's kind of the hero arc. Um, Nietzsche called it um, the will to stupidity. The willingness to be the idiot in order to become the enlightened. I think that's how he put it. Um, or in education, it's the concept of failing forward. But the problem is, as I progressed in my failing forward, my circumambulation, falling over, failing, was I eventually got to the point where I thought, I should have made more progress than this by now. And um, I began to view my falling as unacceptable, and convergent thinking dominated, and the execution of my imagination happened. And I found myself experiencing very little freedom and joy in life because I was so concerned with, I gotta stop failing so much. So these, these ideas from Jung and Nietzsche are so good, but they're almost there. Instead of becoming the hero, God's inviting us to be completely free to fail and to look stupid, not because we're approaching becoming the hero, but because we're approaching the hero. We're getting closer to God. We stumble forward because he's the source of true wisdom and he is the provider. And when I realized this, I mean, this was a, a, an absolute liberation from a prison of pride in my life and a prison of fear. So some of the Israelites responded to it, most of them didn't. We'll continue in verse 19. The kings came, they fought, then, king, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So Israel, they were waiting for military might to be able to push back against the Canaanites. But what happened was, and a lot of the details I'm about to tell you about come from chapter four. Chapter five is a song commemorating what happened in chapter four. Basically, the Israelites rush down the mountain and a massive storm front comes in. Lots of rain, the river Kishon floods, that valley turns to mud and the chariots can't move. They get completely bogged down. The Canaanites freak out, and there's an absolute rout. The Israelites come in and have a decisive victory. And then Sisera, their brilliant military general, gets off his chariot and runs. 
And so he knows that there's a man named Heber nearby. He was an ally of Israel's, but he's a turncloak. He's been secretly feeding the Canaanites information about what the Israelites were up to. And so he runs to hide in the tent camp of their informant Heber. But Heber's wife, Jael, comes out and intercepts him and says, come to my tent, I'm gonna hide you. And so he says, great, hide me. She puts him under a blanket and he says, give me some water, I'm dying of thirst. And she brings him a glass of milk and he falls asleep. So we'll read on in verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. So Israel wanted to wait until they had a mighty general and a mighty military to push back against Sisera and the Canaanites. And God gave them rain. He gave them the housewife of a traitor, armed with a glass of milk and a blanket and a tent peg. Paul, he, he describes this so well in 2 Corinthians 12. He, he asks God to remove this thorn from his side. And, and that's one of those things we deal with. If I could just get this problem dealt with, then I would be ready. And he says God refused him. And God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. In fact, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And it was because of that that Paul was able to boast in his weakness to deny eloquence as a speaker and to be content in his weakness in the midst of calamity. So God's way of freeing us from our prisons of pride, of fear, of self-sufficiency, of waiting until everything's just right, whatever it is for you, is he calls us to be fools in a sense but not fools on the hero's journey, more like kids. The freedom to kind of stumble around because he's sufficient. And with the, I mean, the imagery is so strong here with Jael and Sisera. Um, when Deborah says, Jael crushed Sisera's head. You can hear the same language from Genesis 3, God's promise to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. Even the word Sisera sounds very serpentine. It's a very clear reminder. God's telling us, I'm going to accomplish the mission to bless the nations through you. I'm going to accomplish the mission of putting to death the prince of darkness and sin and death itself 
In fact, the prince of darkness is already in mourning. And we'll finish the song here. And that's what this is about, the prince of darkness already being in mourning. Verse 28, out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil. They're just thinking maybe Sisera is raping and pillaging in victory. In verse 31, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. So the idea here is that God invites us into mission right as we are, totally unprepared and not good enough at all because it's this being the fool and failing forward that we move into a relationship with the Father who provides. And I think the best, you know, the, the will to stupidity, the being the fool, they're great images, but Jesus' image is a lot better and a lot more complete. In Matthew 18, the disciples ask Jesus, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus responds saying, he puts a child in the midst of them <clears throat> and he says, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the picture is to be like a child who's not impressive, who's not intelligent, sharp, witty, isn't prudent, doesn't have all their ducks in a row. That's not what God is calling for. That's what we think we need. God's calling us to become like children who are dependent on his wisdom, his provision. And you know, life is a whole lot more fun when you do this. So after seminary, I have built a prison of pride around myself. I joined this small group. And I really feel the need to prove that I'm the smartest and most educated person in this small group. And the result was I was massively tedious and boring. Um, and I could kind of tell what people thought of me. And I, I just got so sick and tired of trying to control what people thought of me. I realized I had a pride issue going on. So I came up with a very creative way to try to crush that pride in my life. And I decided, I, okay, I'm intentionally gonna say stupid things and I'm gonna ask really dumb questions. And then uh, that will crush my pride. And so I did, and it was really difficult. Um, but the result was I started having so much fun in this small group. I started seeing the other members for the first time because I wasn't obsessed with myself. And then a couple months later, my pastor told me, our small group is so fun when you're there. And look, I'm not the hero of this story. I was intentionally trying to be an idiot. The point is, is that when we let go of our pride, when we let go of all the things that we think we need, God shows up. And it's, it's not just effective, it's actually a lot more fun 
because I was liberated from a prison of pride. I was miserable all the time, trying to control what people think of me. That is a fool's errand. And the thing that Jesus adds to this is that we're not just waiting to be smart enough, good enough, well-supplied enough. We're also waiting to be good enough. I know a lot of us do this. I can't do this because I had a really rough week sin-wise, right? But the crazy thing about Jesus going to the cross is that that's already been dealt with. If you are in Jesus, it doesn't matter how bad your week was. He commissions you right now. It's like the last thing Peter did before Jesus went to the cross was he pretended not to know him, right? Nope, I don't know that guy. And the next time they see each other, Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. He does the same thing with the woman at the well in John 4. She has a reputation. She's hated in her town for being so promiscuous and wrecking marriages. And Jesus says, go back to this town and tell them about me and bring them to me. And she does, and it works. So if you're stuck in an atrophied imagination, if you're stuck in relying on yourself, if you're stuck in a prison of pride like me, you know, if you're tired of living life on the sidelines, waiting until you're good enough, Jesus is calling you into this adventure of faith right here, right now. It doesn't matter how unprepared you are. So my question to you is, what is the Spirit calling you to? What are you unprepared for that you know you should go and do? Or that you want to do, but you're just not quite there yet? Anyone want to be a fool right now and tell us about it? That's a real invitation, by the way. The act of coming up to communion after this, by the way, is doing just that. It's saying, I do not have what I need. It's saying, I need the provisions and the wisdom and the forgiveness with my Father in heaven through Jesus, who paid for all of this for me. And it liberates us to just be like children. So that's what we're called into today. Father, thank you for this incredible news. Thank you for freeing us from the insane pressure of trying to be good enough, smart enough, witty enough, well-provisioned enough. Thank you for calling us to just live like fools. We pray that you would send your spirit here to quicken us and show us the way forward. In your son's name, amen.